You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, December 16th. I'm Emily Schutz. And I'm Kwangu Liwewe. The owners of a small business that opened during the peak of COVID-19 are getting their first chance to sell their wares to customers face-to-face. They reflect on the struggles of the past year and a half. Because we couldn't go anywhere, a lot of us was inside. So a lot of the gathering of the items was a little tough to get. In the Bronx, a group of LGBT seniors came together for an in-person holiday gathering for the first time in two years. I get to see my ladies. I get to know this is the only time I'd be able you know, come here and be around people like me. And street vendors across the city face a grueling choice, pay high fees or operate without a permit and risk getting shut down by the city. It's hard. My dad has been waiting for a permit for 10 years. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. For the first time since the Vietnam War, a black soldier is a recipient of the Medal of Honor. President Joe Biden today recognizing the sacrifices of Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash. Sergeant Cash and his family gave everything for our country. Their devotion to his memory, their years working to make sure that his courage and selflessness were properly documented and honored, is a testament to the love he inspired and the legacy he left behind. Sergeant First Class Cash is now the seventh individual to receive a Medal of Honor for his actions in Operation Iraqi Freedom. The Medal of Honor was also awarded to Sergeant First Class Christopher Sellies and Master Sergeant Earl Plumley for conspicuous gallantry. Vice President Kamala Harris, the First Lady, and the Second Gentleman were also in attendance. The Biden administration has announced a plan to replace lead pipes in the United States. It calls for states to receive billions of dollars under new guidelines from the Environmental Protection Agency. NPR's Aisha Roscoe reports the details of the effort were announced this morning by Vice President Harris. The White House has pledged to speed up the removal of lead pipes and lead paint from U.S. buildings over the next decade. The recently passed bipartisan infrastructure bill includes $15 billion for the EPA to dole out to states over five years to replace lead service lines. EPA will also release guidance for local governments about the best practices for overhauling these water systems. At least one industry group estimates that it would cost more than $60 billion to replace every lead pipe in the U.S. Aisha Roscoe, NPR News. The U.S. Army says the vast majority of its service members are now fully vaccinated against COVID-19. However, it says roughly 1% that's more than 3,800 soldiers refuse to comply by this week's deadline. Texas Children's Hospital is part of a national study of COVID-19 vaccines for children under 5. Carolyn Love from Houston Public Media says the hospital is expecting to have enough data to be able to ask the FDA early next year to approve the vaccine for the nation's youngest children. Dr. Flor Munoz, the director of transplant infectious diseases at Texas Children's Hospital, says the clinical trial of vaccines for kids under five is going well. The hope is that they'll be able to start vaccinating kids under five the first quarter of 2022. Munoz says the clinical trial has determined one-tenth of an adult dose is enough for kids under five to produce the same amount of antibodies as adults. And she adds young kids tolerate the vaccine well. Almost no reactions. They tolerate it so well that um, sometimes, you know, parents try to guess whether they had vaccine or placebo in the trial, and it's impossible. Children ages five and up have been eligible for the COVID vaccine since early November. I'm Caroline Love in Houston. It's NPR. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Gabriella Maestri. 
New York City officially has the highest rate of COVID-19 cases in the nation, with a 135% increase in reported cases from the average two weeks ago. According to the New York Department of Health, the daily infection rate is now at 3,709 cases. The Omicron variant is creating many unpredictabilities for the new year ahead, and several college campuses are now canceling non-essential events over the recent surge, the latest being New York University. Early this morning, a man was shot and killed by an off-duty police officer after an attempted robbery. Police say the officer sustained eight gunshot wounds, though he is presently in stable condition. Reporter Elizabeth Sander has more. Police officials say an off-duty lieutenant was leaving Club Le Boom in Woodside, Queens, early this morning when he was approached by a group of masked, armed individuals. Here's NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea speaking to reporters this morning. At approximately 3.09 a.m., uniformed members from the 114 precinct responded to a call for an officer shot. Upon arrival, officers encountered two males with gunshot wounds laying on the ground. Shea says the suspect was shot and pronounced dead shortly after. We believe these individuals were attempting to rob the officer, possibly of jewelry that the officer was wearing. Police have not released the name of the deceased suspect and are looking for two to three others. They're offering a cash reward of $10,000 for anyone with information. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Elizabeth Sander. In other news today, Mayor-elect Eric Adams has picked Queens native Keishan Sewell as the next NYPD commissioner. The 49-year-old would become the first female police commissioner for the city. She served as the chief detective for the Nassau County Police Department on Long Island, where she was the first black woman to ever hold the position, leading a division of 350 people. A look at the markets. The Dow is up 93 points, while the Nasdaq is falling by about 270 points. S&P 500 also down by about 20 points. For the rest of today, we'll see a high temperature of 60 degrees, dropping down to 53 degrees overnight. You can expect mostly cloudy skies this afternoon, followed by sunshine tomorrow with another warm December day ahead, reaching a high of 58 degrees. This is Columbia Radio News. I'm Gabriella Maestri. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Kwango Dewewe. Every holiday season for the past six years, a large group of LGBT seniors and allies in the Bronx has come together to eat, dance, and spend time with their chosen family. And for the first time in two years, they're able to celebrate the holidays in person in a brand new community center of their own. Reporter Adam Smith-Perez has the story. Sage Bronx, also known as Pride House, is an LGBT community center for seniors. It's located in the Cretona neighborhood of the Bronx. Though it serves the local LGBT community, it isn't discriminatory, meaning that any senior, regardless of sexual orientation, has access to its programs, its free meals, and just a place to be and talk. The center is on the first floor of what looks like your typical brand new housing complex, seven stories and no rainbow flags to identify it. But when you enter, it's a different story. Today, Sage Bronx is hosting a Thanksgiving celebration Because of COVID, it's the first in-person holiday event in over two years. An R&B singer and a local rapper performed, while Sage members ate stuffing, turkey, and pie. And now, Vivian Jones is on the dance floor, twirling around while her girlfriends watch on in amusement. Gotta have house. Gotta have house. Gotta have house. Jones is in her mid-60s. She's the party girl among her friends and was an avid techno house club kid back in her day. Today... 
she's wearing a look. You know, my orange sparkles, orange, and my cowboy boots. I love my cowboy boots. These are real cowboy boots, they're real leather too. Sage Bronx is the first LGBT community center for seniors in the borough. It opened in 2015 at a much smaller location before moving to this new location on the northern edge of Gratona Park. It offers everything from kickboxing classes to chili-making competitions to a discussion group called America's Burning, which discusses the three Ps, pandemic, politics, and protest. Jones has been a part of SAGE for a couple of years, and to her, this community time is essential. And I, I get to see my ladies. I get to know this is the only time I'd be able, you know, come here and be around people like me, so ladies like me. That cackle belongs to Audrey Donnelly, an 86-year-old local legend here at SAGE. Donnelly has a hard time walking, so being in lockdown and missing her weekly social hour with close friends like Jones was extremely isolating. It really meant being home all day, every day. You felt confined, you know, and I felt betrayed in a sense, you know, because I was all alone. Dr. Tina Mashey, a sociologist and professor at Fordham University's Graduate School of Social Service, has studied LGBT seniors for decades. Her research on trauma within the LGBT senior community shows, time and time again, that just being around people like themselves has a tremendous impact on well-being. They have um, activities like physical exercise, support groups, or individual counseling, or just peer-on-peer -peer talking. It's peer supports that actually have a lot of influence. According to Mashi, LGBT seniors at places like SAGE, who have now lived through not just the COVID pandemic, but also the AIDS crisis, once again care for each other and their community networks. So when COVID would come along, they would see the patterns. It's a crisis, and we're going to get through this, and we're going to do that by helping one another. The next in-person holiday event at SAGE, a Christmas gathering on December 21st, will have singers and dancers, raffles, a free dinner, and maybe a drag performance. But most importantly, what many at SAGE will come back for is the family and belonging they can't find elsewhere. For now, as the pandemic continues, Donnelly will rely on faith that she and her loved ones will be okay, that same grounding faith that kept her going through lockdown and that has served her for her entire life. It's just like when you love, you love from within. And it's something that you fear. <laughs> for Columbia Radio News, I'm Adam Smith-Perez. It's widely reported that last week's Amazon Web Service shutdown impacted hundreds of online platforms like Netflix, Disney+, even Venmo and Delta Airlines. But there's one aspect of the nine-hour-long outage that may come as a surprise, and that's Canvas, an educational platform used by schools and universities across the country. Reporter Elizabeth Sander has more. Last Tuesday, students across the country were using Canvas to take tests, submit assignments, and communicate with professors, until everything went blank, that is. It was kind of like when you register for classes and there's too much, too many people on it, so it just shut down. That's Neely McKee, a junior at Columbia University. Beginning the morning of December 7th, each time a user logged on to Canvas, they were greeted with 504 gateway error. Hitting the refresh button wasn't working and there was little information circulating about what was happening. The shutdown impacted McKee's remote computer science course. She was unable to take the exam her professor had scheduled. 
In structure, the company that operates Canvas uses the Amazon Web Services server to run its platforms. On the day of the outage, Instructure had to sit and wait until the AWS servers were back on. Which is very atypical mm. for something as giant professional as AWS to have just like a like a amateur, you know, web server, like no no styling or anything. It's like if Google went down and just, you know, put like a black text up there and said like, can't, can't reach this or something. Nick Nyby is a senior programmer at Columbia Center for Teaching and Learning. He has access to the AWS admin site and noticed it being down as well though it didn't impact any of his current projects. But this is all pretty complicated for those who don't work in computers. So what really is AWS anyway? Think about it like a server is just a computer. You could run it at home. To have that um, running yourself, you're going to have to you know, run those operating system updates yourself. Make sure it's cool enough. Make sure it's, um, you know, just care for that server yourself. It's just way more cost effective for people to tell Amazon to do it. Another issue the outage brings up is the lack of transparency from Amazon Web Services about what was going on day of, leaving confused professors and students to scramble and shift course. AWS later revealed that they didn't know why the outage was happening at the time, due to internal server congestion. They've even, in fact, written this, you know, multiple-page report about what went wrong here that, you know, both of us are having trouble understanding. Effectively, the only section that makes sense to those not proficient in internet language is their apology. The rest reads sort of like gibberish. Nyby does trust AWS engineers and says the fact that they publish such an expansive message is a good thing overall. People need to know how flimsy a lot of this is and that, that yeah, anything is possible. AWS, you think of it as too big to fail, but it's always a possibility with, in the business world. So it's not that I have a major problem with AWS. I just, I don't put all my eggs in one basket ever, you know. Nyby says had Instructure had another backup server for Canvas, they may have avoided a total shutdown. With AWS, is sort of like a, a wiggle call that actually we do not actually have that technological access um, as we thought we do. And that relying on uh, uh, the technology media platforms alone really uh, would not address all the needs of, um, of the learning community. That's Yu Kyung Chang, professor of educational technology at the Teachers College at Columbia University. I think the discussion has to go beyond that one instead of I was not able to take the test to a more uh, fundamental changes that are occurring in the way we teach and learn. Not all students were angry they couldn't use Canvas. In McKee's case, her professor awarded them all a hundreds on the exam instead of finding a time to retake it later that week. Other students received extra credit or more time to finish assignments due that day, and they took to Twitter to celebrate. She posted a photo of the 504 Gateway timeout with the caption, Canvas really said happy finals, and a heart emoji. For Columbia Radio News, Elizabeth Sander reports. It's Uptown Radio. I'm Kwangu Liwewe. After eight years of Mayor de Blasio and nearly three years of a raging pandemic, there are fears that some of the most vulnerable New Yorkers may be forgotten. I'm talking about the homeless. Without consistent housing, medical care, and access to basic necessities, how will the safety of the homeless population be prioritized as we take on a new variant and a new mayor administration? For more, we turn to Joseph Lunman of Vocal NY, a homeless advocacy group. Welcome to the show, Joseph. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So, Joseph, let me take you back to March 2020 and just tell us what impact did COVID-19 have on the homeless population in New York? It was a really tough time in those early days, but also, you know, a lot of the day-to-day services that homeless folks rely on to survive, drop-in centers and things like that shut down or scaled back their services really dramatically. So, you know, there was, particularly in those first two months, a lot of confusion, a lot of anxiety, um, you know, and, and, and not a lot of direction from the city of New York about how they should be keeping themselves safe. Now we've got this new Omicron variant, which is more transmissible. What are your fears here? For most of the first wave, people were in congregate shelters. Um, and, you know, the, the city moved folks into doubled up rooms. Vocal New York and a lot of other groups had been advocating for single rooms for folks. Um, you know, that was sort of the compromise that was reached. But the move out started in July um, during the Delta uh, surge. And, and we felt that that was premature even then, you know, that the surge of Delta was putting people at risk still, you know, and that there wasn't any real reason to move people back. Um, while the virus is still spreading. I think all of those concerns are even more so um, with Omicron. Like all of the evidence seems to suggest that it passes much, much faster. There is not a clear sense of how many folks in the shelter system have been able to be vaccinated or whether or not, you know, the vaccine is is effective at preventing infections. But you got to know that, you know, we're talking about a population of people who are living 25 in a room in some cases. They're sharing meals in massive, um, you know, uh, cafeterias. Um, you know, so everything that that could put a person at risk of the virus. So this is a huge problem. But you are an advocacy group. Um, you're obviously in discussion with the city on these issues. What are they saying to you now? What's the game plan? I don't know that there is a consistent game plan right now from DHS around specifically the Omicron variant. I mean, from the start, DHS, uh, you know, our decisions there from the start, but but starting around six months in, DHS has been relatively consistent with getting um, people tests. Uh, they have been pushing the vaccines pretty aggressively. You know, PPE availability varies from shelter to shelter. So, but as far as I know, we have not heard of a, a consistent plan to deal with the Omicron variant specifically. Eric Adams will take over as a new man in two weeks. What advice do you have for him? I think for the first time in a long time, we have a real opportunity in the city to, to see a reduction in shelter numbers. So the two things that have happened in the last eight or nine months is, you know, in the second wave of stimulus, the federal government gave out 5,000 and some odd vouchers to the city of New York. And in July, the city council passed a resolution to increase the um, city theft voucher to a fair market rate. So we actually have, for the first time, you know, many thousands of market rate vouchers available to homeless New Yorkers. And as far as we can tell from our conversations with service providers and homeless folks themselves, the, the real bottleneck is, you know, caseworkers and social workers to help folks get into units and also to, to fight landlords who are discriminating against people with vouchers. So, you know, I think that the Adams administration needs to, to come out with a plan to get city agencies to work together, um, to work with the state and, and really engage in an effort to rapidly rehouse people. There isn't a reason why someone in a shelter with a city voucher that's market rate should you know be there for months and months and months. They should be able to get out and get into a permanent place and keep themselves safe from the elements and from COVID-19. You know, and the same is true for those who are eligible for the emergency housing vouchers from the federal government. So what's really needed right now is a plan to get vouchers in folks' hands, get folks, um, you know, leases, get those leases signed, and get people out of the system altogether. Joseph Lundman is the housing campaign coordinator at Vocal NY. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. 
For decades, the Winter Village in Bryant Park has given hurried holiday shoppers a place to pick up unique gifts from artisans and business owners, both local and from around the world. Lining the market are small booths offering goods such as hand-painted ornaments, knitted beanies, and fresh-baked treats, drawing in both tourists and New Yorkers for a holiday in-person shopping experience. Our reporter, Gabriella Maestri, sent us a postcard from there. Over 170 new and returning merchants will be featured at the park this year, from now until January 2nd of 2022. One of these booths will be given to four different minority-owned and New York City-based businesses who were severely impacted by COVID-19. This is part of the Small Business Spotlight program. And first up is husband and wife, Akil and Ebony, co-owners of Vamp and Vintage, a retail and repurposing company. Uh, due to the pandemic, pretty much we started out online. My wife was doing a daycare. And now we're out coming out and meeting the people since you know the pandemic has calmed down a little bit. Since 2020, the two have focused on their passion for art and thrifting after Ebony's career in childcare ended among the pandemic. They knew starting a business together to share their eclectic tastes with others was the answer. It just began at a challenging time. It was very difficult. Um, so we had some items that we purchased over the years. Uh, we had some collectors friends. I have a lot of friends just in the business, music business and things like that. So I was meeting up with collectors and a lot of it was like ship me the stuff and because we couldn't go anywhere. A lot of us was inside. So a lot of the gathering of the items was a little tough to get. The Bronx and Brooklyn natives only have two weeks to make the most of their time at the Winter Village before the next business takes over booth W32. This has been the first opportunity since their business began to interact with customers face-to-face. -face. People come and go from the little space as the day goes on, purchasing items while learning more about the story behind Vamp and Vintage. For our customers, it's uh, just fun coming across these pieces, but for others, it's, it's an emotional connection because they run into pieces that maybe the, that reminds them of their mom or they run into pieces that maybe they lost years ago. And being around people and being outside after the pandemic is such a warm feeling, such a comfortable feeling. From an Alexander McQueen skirt to Prada leather boots, a Burberry sport coat, unique jewelry, and plenty of old graphic t-shirts, the husband and wife duo make sure to offer a variety of options for anyone to connect with. Uh, it's funny because me and my husband are uh, like on two different sides of the ring. Uh, pretty much I like uh, colorful pieces. I like a lot of textures where he likes a lot of subdued pieces with maybe just a little patch or uh, he's very much into uh, research. He's into research where he knows the information to the pieces. This opportunity for selected businesses to showcase their products in a rent-free booth gives them the ability to reach new audiences with retail space in Midtown. According to United Way of New York City, the return of this program follows the success of last year's participating businesses, increasing their revenue up to 330%. Akil and Ebony say it's been a success so far, with their customer base and social media following growing already. Uh, I would say so. The website, uh, we have a few hundred new people just going on there looking to see uh, what they can find. And we have a lot of Instagram followers that have come in. So a lot of people that are wearing the pieces they actually brought here at Bryan Park. And they're tagging us. And we're, we're already seeing the impact as far as uh, what the customers want and the engagement. When it comes to what's next on the horizon for Vamp and Vintage, Akil and Ebony are open to many options, including a storefront of their own. Uh, honestly, the people want the store, okay? So eventually that's what will happen. Like, that's the one thing I, I always get, where's the store, where's the store? And I, I said, hey, 
if you want the store, you'll get the store. Yeah, so one day, that, that may be possible. Gabriella Maestri, Columbia Radio News. At the polls last month, New Yorkers overwhelmingly voted yes on a proposal meant to protect their ecological rights as climate change rears its head. But it's unclear how the new legislation can actually be used to assist those most affected by pollution in our city. Ethan Marchetti reports. As of the new year, all New Yorkers will have the right to clean air, water, and a healthful environment under the Environmental Rights Amendment, or Green Amendment. This amendment, which was proposed on this year's electoral ballot, passed with overwhelming approval and solidifies a precedent of environmental justice for the state as climate change-related issues continue to loom. I think it's just something that everybody supports. You don't want to be poisoned by your environment. And we now, everybody knows that can happen. And so the idea that this is a right to not be poisoned, uh, I think, is something that has broad support. And, and I think that that tells you something about the importance of environmental protection politically. That's Dr. Steve Cohen, director of the research program on sustainability policy and management at Columbia University's Earth Institute. Cohen spoke to the significance of including the Green Amendment on New York's Bill of Rights. He acknowledges its symbolic value for establishing a clean and healthful environment as a legal right, but remains wary about how it will actually be implemented and utilized to protect New Yorkers. It's vagueness provides for a lot of room for interpretation. Uh, It's a very general establishment of a right. Mm -hmm. And how that right gets interpreted over time by courts is something that we really don't know. It could be interpreted one way today and a different way 20, 30 years from now. But this really demonstrates how broad uh, the support for environmental protection is. I really think that's something that's been missed by people as they're looking at this. The vague and reductive language of the amendment gives it a very open-ended future. Climate change continues to produce increasingly damaging natural disasters. The devastation from Hurricane Ida is still fresh in many New Yorkers' minds. And for Bob Tyson, chair of the Environmental and Energy Practice Group at Bond, Schoenick, and King, the Green Amendment could serve as a platform for legal action by citizens against the government in the wake of future flooding and water pollution. I think that there is a possibility of utilizing the amendment to try and facilitate governmental action. Mm -hmm. And so I could see claims based on the city of XYZ didn't do enough to ensure that this sort of catastrophe would not have the impact that it did and result in the flooding, uh, the pollution, the stagnant water impacts to drinking water supplies. The effects of the Ida flooding are still being felt to this day. And while the state has distinct air and water issues to deal with in the city compared to the rest of upstate New York, Tyson hopes that this highly supported new legislation and its establishment of a healthful environment as an inalienable right for all New Yorkers will open the door for more equity and consideration for those who may not have previously been able to advocate for themselves. This amendment uh, is another potential avenue to see some real substantive assistance in communities, whether they are minority communities, economically disadvantaged, educationally disadvantaged. This is, uh, this is viewed as, as something that can potentially make a significant improvement in, in those areas and provide some additional protections. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Ethan Marchetti. There are almost 20,000 food cart vendors in New York City, and about half of them are unlicensed. After cracking down on the black market for permits a few years ago, the city still issues just 3,000 licenses a year. 
and that's made it much harder to make a living for halal card vendors, as our own Camilla Dadaboy finds out. Muhammad has been selling food from a halal cart with his father since he was eight years old. He can whip up a chili dog in less than a minute, make a juicy lamb gyro in his sleep, and can cook a spicy chicken biryani that hits the spot. He's been in the food business since he immigrated here from India with his dad in 2002, one of the 1,500 vendors struggling to make a living on street meat, unlicensed and losing money every year in leasing a permit. It's hard. My dad has been waiting for permit for 10 years. We pay almost $8,000 every year just to rent a permit. Now more than ever, the economics of running a halal food cart in New York City has become a daunting endeavor. The Street Vendor Project, a membership-based project with more than 1,800 active vendors, tackles the challenges food cart sellers encounter every day. This includes obtaining one of the 3,000 push cart permits issued by the Department of Health every year, a strenuous process that can take more than a decade to earn and leads to vendors paying permit holders for a fee. It eventually led to the underground black market to expand, resulting in half the vendor population working under a fake permit or simply unlicensed at all. A representative from the Street Vendor Project mentioned that rather than keeping vendors off the streets, the laws don't reflect the actual demand for licenses. Therefore, by banning vendors from the most economically productive spaces, they play a large role in encouraging informal vending to take place. Before a food vendor can begin running their business, two permits must be secured. The Department of Consumer Affairs explained that neither is permanent as both have a process of renewal associated with them. The first is the mobile food vendor personal license, valid for two years but may take up to two to three months just to get approved. The second permit is the mobile food vending unit and can only be received if the license is granted. This is just the beginning of the long, tedious process of running a whole food cart business. Many immigrant sellers tend to bypass these procedures in order to start earning an income faster, leading back to the permit black market. You know, lots of permit holders lease their permits on the black market because each cart has to have one permit owner in person. We did not want to get involved with that, you know, it's, it was too risky. According to ZipRecruiter, one of the nation's biggest conglomerates for job seekers and employers, it states that the average hourly wage of a food truck seller is between $13 to $14, less than New York City's minimum wage of $15. Solely as a cart vendor, the monthly pay can range between $1,800 to $2,400, barely enough to earn a living in the city. Uh, we've been waiting all this time, and we have to lease a permit every year. We work long hours to run a cart, but uh, it's it's what my father knows. One day we want to own a cart and, you know, I will take over for my dad. Last January, the city council passed legislation to lift the cap on available permits. The bill enables the city to issue 400 new permits annually for the next 10 years in attempt to eliminate the underground trade. It also establishes a new office of enforcement, including health and sanitation. From the fight to obtain city permits to barely meeting the rent each month, immigrants like Muhammad have learned to embrace the trials of the food vendor lifestyle to survive in the city. And although the cost of opportunity is a grave one, it'll always be a New York staple. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Camila Dadaboy.
This is Uptown Radio. I'm Emily Schutz. Around 8 million metric tons of plastic waste end up in the ocean every year. A recent study published by the Journal of Hazardous Materials shows that microplastics damage human cells. Drinking water, seafood, and table salt might contain these harmful microplastics. Here to speak with us today about what these microplastics are and how they end up in our systems is Dr. Anna Roebuck, a researcher at Mount Sinai. Thank you for being here, Dr. Roebuck. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start out by asking, what are these microplastics and how do we end up consuming them? So humans are exposed to microplastics from all the plastic products around us. So these packaging materials that we use to package food or, or other goods, they're constantly shedding little tiny pieces of plastic into food or into the air or into water. And then we end up consuming those microplastics when we eat the food or kind of in, in our indoor environments, we're breathing a lot of it in. So at this point, what do we know about how they can harm us? We know that microplastics and some of the chemicals that are associated with them can cause changes in our hormone systems that impact development. The plasticizers and those, those plasticizing chemicals have been associated with reduced sperm counts across multiple decades. We know that some plasticizers are associated with developmental impacts in children and learning outcomes. We also know that some plastics are thought to be chemicals that can impact how we gain or lose weight. Wow. So what about wildlife? What are microplastics and plastic pollution in general doing to ecosystems and animals? A lot of the plastic that ends up into the environment, it starts out as a larger consumer plastic of some sort. Think of a plastic bottle, for example. Different sizes of wildlife will interact with the bottle at different points. They can eat it. They, they can get entangled in plastic bags, for example, or plastic rope. Once it gets tinier and tinier, smaller and smaller organisms can then eat the plastic. The U.S. Department of Energy says they're putting $14.5 million towards research and development to make it easier to recycle. What more is needed to solve the problem? Is this enough? I think it's a welcome step in the right direction. I would say the U.S. recycling system is grossly inadequate. That money is going to be great to improve our infrastructure, but this also needs to be a top-down solution in that many of the products that we encounter in day-to-day environments, they're not meant to really be efficiently recycled. They contain a mixture of different polymers and plastics. It is more costly to recycle them than it is to just throw them out, essentially, and, and start with new, fresh plastic. So how can we as consumers combat the problem of plastic in the ocean, going off of what you just said? Ask where your recycling is going. Um, ask ask your, your building, ask your, your neighborhood, even just starting that conversation can be useful to show um, the managers of that waste that people care. On an individual basis, reducing your amount of plastic that you use in your life can be really, really valuable. On a per capita basis, the U.S. uses more plastic and generates more plastic waste than any other country in the world. And so bringing that number down can help kind of turn off the tap while we figure out how to dispose with everything at the end of the waste stream. Simple things like switching to recyclable goods, um, making sure whatever you buy is recyclable, using reusable mugs and straws and, and cutlery, those kind of things can really add up once you make them into habits in your life. Um, on kind of a different note, there have been recent reports of plastic-eating microbes, bacteria, and mushrooms. As far as you know, can this make a dent in the problem? 
I certainly hope it could. Um, there are certainly some um, very interesting developments in terms of microorganism ability to kind of eat away at plastic, but it's so far away from being a scalable solution that I think some of those solutions get trotted out as, oh, hey, look, we're going to be fine, when that really distracts from our reality at hand, which is that our indoor environments, our aquatic environments, they're inundated with plastic right now. Those microbes are not going to deal with the millions of tons of plastic that are already in our environments, already in our oceans. Um, we, we really need to think about this as a here and now problem and not kind of punt responsibility to this, this microbe solution down the road. Dr. Anna Roebuck is a researcher at Mount Sinai. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. In 1914, President Woodrow Wilson proclaimed the first national holiday to honor and celebrate motherhood. But Father's Day wouldn't become nationally recognized until more than 50 years later. In mainstream culture, fathers are traditionally seen more as men than dads. But in recent times, fathers have become increasingly involved in childcare and housework. Our reporter, Frederick Hessenkamper, spoke with a stay-at-home dad. My mom was always the stay-at-home parent, like she was always there taking us to our appointments, our play dates, and I just wanted our daughter to grow up um, in that type of um, atmosphere. That's Xavier, father of a seven-year-old daughter. I asked him what was going through his mind when he initially decided to take paternity leave. At first, I, I was apprehensive. I live in a neighborhood that's very white-dominated, so the only people of, of my color are either the help or the nannies or caregivers. Being his, Hispanic and also being gay, um, I was uh, insecure. Xavier and his family live in Battery Park City, where it's very common for parents to let nannies take the kids to the playground. Xavier likes to do it himself. When he decided to take parental leave, Stereotypes around his race and sexuality were bigger concerns for him than his gender, but he knows that straight fathers often get picked on for taking parental leave just because they're men. My brother-in-law, I remember he got some of the negative comments. You know, he's a heterosexual guy and he wanted to take care of his son and I supported it. I was like, why not? But I, I remember we were talking about it and some of his buddies were like, oh, that's not cool, you know, like, basically your fiance is, um, you know, <laughs> like providing for you, but it's nothing wrong. You know, it's like, I think the times are changing. But Xavier still believes that new dads need to be careful about how temporarily staying at home could affect future employment opportunities. Any like stay home dad that I meet, the best advice I always tell them, it's like, you don't want to have a huge gap in your resume. Because time does go by fast when you're caring for a child. If you get yourself involved, let's say volunteering, or you know, if you're passionate about an organization, even if you do something during that duration, I think it's key because at least you have something in your resume. I mean, you could definitely go for an interview and be like, yeah, I raised my child for seven, six years. But some people may see that as a sign of weakness. Xavier's employer was eager to keep him on, despite his wish to become a stay-at-home dad. So they worked out a situation where he would do as much work as full-time fatherhood allowed. Xavier felt some pressure to make a point about parenting after his employer asked him to stay on and his friends started calling him lazy for taking the leave. I started to record 
little videos and and showcase them in social media or pictures, I started to get more uh, recognition. Olivia, did you have a good day? Stay-at-home parents just not like watching Ellen eating bonbons. You know, it's, it's a lot of work. And that's not any different if you're a man. For Columbia Radio News, this is Frederick Hissenkemper. Professional degrees are becoming harder and harder for most Americans to afford. Brendan Rashis takes a look at the cost of one particular professional program, dental school, here in New York City. A recent Wall Street Journal analysis of federal data finds that dental school is leaving students with immense debt and salaries that can't pay the money back. The study finds that a gap between debt and income was especially large for graduates of New York University's dental school, which claims to educate 10% of the country's dentists. At NYU, the median debt was more than four times as much as median earnings two years after graduation. One recent dental graduate, Megan Poor, is overwhelmed by how much she owes. My debt is over $400,000. It's just become way too much money, and I don't know. It's, it's very tough. Poor is currently completing a one-year residency program in a trauma unit at a city hospital. These one-year residencies are mandated for all dental school graduates by the state, and they further decrease early career earnings. Dozens of other states simply require a licensing exam. It's definitely not the way that it used to be, where some of my professors went to school for like $20,000, and as soon as they graduated, they opened up their own private practices, and that was just like the standard. Now, like, professors can't even comprehend how much money we're taking out. Stephen McDonald, a second-year dental student at NYU, agrees that the cost is untenable. I mean, it's, it's, it's exorbitantly high for, frankly, no particular reason. And then, and then you make the application process disgustingly expensive. For me to apply to four schools last year, but it was almost three grand. People don't have access to that type of, to that type of wealth. I mean, that's somebody's entire savings. Part of what makes the NYU case interesting is that their dental school is one of the most expensive in the country, but by contrast, their medical school has been completely tuition-free since 2018. While it's unlikely NYU Dental will become tuition-free anytime soon, many argue that the cost, like the cost of most professional degrees, should be greatly reduced. Though, the American Dental Association finds the high tuition is consistent with other types of higher education. It's also clear that New York needs more dentists. Recent government data indicates that New York State will face the third highest state shortage of dentists in the country by 2025. While the cost of dental school likely contributes to this shortage, another factor is the class size at dental schools. They enroll very few students. NYU gets about 2,000 to 4,000 applications per year. They admit 80. While tuition costs and class sizes may someday change, for the foreseeable future, a shortage of dentists in New York will persist, and many of them will struggle to pay back their loans. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Brendan Rashes. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our foreman today was executive producer Brandon Dora. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Nika Simovich-Fisher. 
Director Ethan Marchetti coordinated our studio production with assistant producers Talia Alderley and Peter Gallette. Our web producer, Brandon Rashes, got the stream live to the web. Our board ops today were Adam Smith-Perez and Camilla Dadaboy. Gabriela Maestri and Elizabeth Sander produced the news. Senior editor, Luke Cregan, and assistant editor, Frederick Hissen-Camper, led our copy team. Our instructors, Richard Ye and Daniel Guimet, advised our staff. I'm Emily Schutz. And I'm Kwanguliwewe. You can always find us on uptownradio.org. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening.